On July 22, 2011, Norway experienced two terrorist attacks, a bombing at a government building in Oslo, and a mass shooter event at a youth camp on nearby Utøya Island. These were perpetrated by a lone right-wing extremist. These attacks were unprecedented for the peaceful country of Norway and stretched the Norwegian first responders to their limits. My guest today is an active member of Norway's most elite tactical and counterterrorism police unit, Beriet Skapstropen, also known by its call sign Delta and internationally as Delta Norge. Because of the nature of his current assignment and the nature of their work, it is critical that we maintain his anonymity. As a result, we will not be showing his face on video or using his real name. Additionally, because these events resulted in the death of 77 people, most of whom were children, and the injury of more than 300 others, will not be glorifying the attacker by using his name. It is our hope that the memory of the attacker will be forgotten, but the memory of his innocent victims will not. My name is John Becker. For the past four decades, I've dedicated my life to protecting tactical operators. During this time, I've worked with many of the world's top law enforcement and military units. As a result, I've had the privilege of working with the amazing leaders who take teams into the world's most dangerous situations. The goal of this podcast is to share their stories in hopes of making us all better leaders, better thinkers, and better people. Welcome to The Debrief. Hey, thanks so much for being here with me today. I, may, I really appreciate you coming out and spending the time with me. Uh, thanks for having me on your podcast. It's uh, I'm I'm really grateful for being there. So why don't we start with you know because we have kind of an international audience in Norway. Uh, you know, for context, Norway is about the population of the city of Los Angeles, about the size of the state of New Mexico, stretched in a long line. Yeah. Uh, biggest city being Oslo is roughly the size of Las Vegas. Yep. Um, so, so help me understand the structure of Norwegian policing. Yeah, um, we, we have several police districts. So at the moment, we have 12 different police districts, which each have their, uh, have their own chief of police. Um, and they're more or less um, the same structure. So um, you got the police chief on the, on the top, and then um, with the different policing sections underneath. So for instance, in Oslo, where my unit is um, located, um, you have the normal police. It's kind of like the patrolling police officer that you see out in the street in the police car. Um, and then you have something that is kind of like a SWAT team. It's um, like a more tactical, uh, more trained police. Um, and then you have my unit, which is uh, the ultimate, like um, like the HRT or counter-terrorist unit. So, um, so that's pretty much it. Um, and the uh, unit is a national police level. That's unit, correct. Right? Yeah. So um, we we have a compound which uh, consists of other different uh, national units, and we're on call for the whole country. So if the police chief in the northern police district need help needs help with a mission, uh, he will call, and then his um, uh, call will be approved, and then we will set off to assist that police district. 
So is the are, are the police districts still national level police? Yeah. Or are they are they individual organizations? So so the whole thing is national police. It's just split up into twelve different districts. Yeah. So Got that's it. correct. And and you have something called the police directorate, which is kind of like a supervising um, level of the police, um, which is in charge of the national uh, policing. Um, more or less, it's it's close attachment to the politicians and the justice department, and they have different sections. Um, so they cooperate with the different kind of police districts in order to how how the policing in Norway will uh, be and be conducted. In and and so so your unit starts in '76. I'm assuming it probably has its roots in Munich, like every other counterterrorism unit in the world. Yeah, that's that's uh, correct. It, it was a Munich incident that spurred um, the start of the unit, uh, and it was going under a different name up until '76 um, or '75, I think, and then officially it changed name to Beskalstroppen in 1976. And talk to me about the unit. Like, how, how big? What's the mission set? Yeah. Um, at the moment, our unit is approximately 120 to 150 people altogether. Uh, the exact number of the operators are, uh, it's um, like a secret thing, so we won't disclose that. Um, but we have grown throughout the years. Um, and we are uh, four different divisions, so we, which uh, have um, a team, like two teams on each division. Division, so there's eight teams altogether, and um, on each division you have all, more or less, all the specialties that we um, we have on the teams. So we have spe specialty teams divided into all of the four divisions. Um, at the time of uh, 22nd of July, we had a different structure in my unit where you you had two special teams uh, all together, uh, which made out one division. So we have a swap. Yeah, so we mixed up the teams. So every team now is like a multifaceted um, a, um, assault team, um, would you like? So. Yeah, so breaching capability, yeah. uh, maritime capability, yeah. CQB uh, capability. Yeah, rope entry, everything, and sniping. So all of those capabilities are on um, on one team, or each team now of those eight teams. Um, uh, yeah, and I, I think it's it's difficult, I think, for a lot of people, you know, maybe in the northern part of, of Canada, but it's difficult for people to understand how much the environment can be a participant in your operations. You know, you have a very angry ocean, you have yeah. you know, periods of very long periods of darkness and, and, you know, strong weather and cold temperatures. And so I'm, I'm going to guess there's a pretty significant maritime capability to the unit and pretty significant Nordic capability to the unit. Yeah. Uh, that's definitely true. And it's, um, it's all depending on what time of year it is. Um, late autumn and winter, First part of the winter is definitely um, the hardest, hardest uh, time of the year uh, to move around in Norway. Um, you have a lot of the mountain passes; they they close up during the winter time. That can happen within just half an hour time. Um, and when it does that, 
uh, obviously you can't fly helicopter um, and you also experience sometimes difficulties taking off and landing the airplanes on the commercial routes going here in Norway um, and like you said we have a huge there's a small country small long thin country but we have a lot of coastline and there's a lot of small islands and communities living on um, all scattered along that coastline all the way from the south all the way up to the north uh, yeah, I was surprised in, in doing my homework. I was surprised about s more than 70% of Norway is just uninhabited. Yeah. Uh, it's just, it's just, you know, barren tundra basically. Yeah. Um, and the further yeah, north I, I, you go into the country, um, then like the less roads you have as well. So you're more or less confined to one specific, um, driving road. Uh, which yeah, makes which definitely ma difficult. makes it a real problem. <laughs> yeah, it, it makes it a real problem, and sometimes the distance uh, isn't that far, but you need to drive all the way around the big lake, for instance, because you don't have any bridge across it. And it's the same thing with the mountains. Um, not every mountain has a tunnel through it. So, like you said, yeah, yeah, logistics yeah. becomes uh, challenging at times. Yeah, which which is going to be relevant to today's discussion for sure. Yeah. So, 22 July, 2011, um, yep. how's your day start? Well, uh, for me and my unit, or my team then, we, we started out pretty much uh, as we did every day back then. Um, I was working the day shift, so we, we just met at work, uh, sat around the sofa, had a coffee and planned the day. And um, what we do is more or less in the morning, we, we do the, the physical training. So we, we did that and then we had planned to do tactical training uh, all throughout the rest of the day. Um, and kind of like, like coincidence with Habit that day, we were training for uh, exactly the mission that happened more or less at Utoya, where you had small uh, terrorist units attacking soft targets. Um, yeah, so we were doing that and just having a good day. Uh, had a nice, really good training. And then afterwards, uh, my team, we were planning on going climbing in an indoor climbing center. Um, so we did that when we were let off at work at 3 p.m. in the afternoon. Um, so yeah, and um, we hadn't been climbing at the center for very long. Um, because all of a sudden, all the phones rang. Um, and we were on call that uh, week as well. So it's never a good uh, sign when all the phones calls at the same time when you're together. So we knew that something had happened and that, that we were probably going to have to drive into work. Um, so yeah, so um, I was just quickly let down from the wall and took my phone and uh, the guy from my unit that called, he, he just said, you need to you need to get to, to work really quick. Uh, a bomb has gone off in Oslo. Um, so I told the rest of my guys in my team, because I was team leader at the time, and what had happened and what the call had been. And we just held up all the gear and uh, went to the wardrobe to get our stuff. And the phone called a second time. Um, and the same guy, he said, well, um, you definitely need to hurry up. A second bomb has gone off. Um, 
So then we were like two bumps going off and we were already on the first call. We were like, well, this this isn't an accident. There's a terrorist attack. Um, so we were just already planning ahead in our head um, and getting ready for what was waiting for us. Um, and um, when we had gotten our shoes on and were about to leave the, the climbing center, um, the phone rang for the third time. And um, it was basically the similar message that another bomb, so the third bomb had gone off in Oslo. So, um, so that was our start of the afternoon. So we just drove off from the climbing center really quick and uh, back to our um, job and um, went inside, geared up, and just went straight ahead um, out, drove off, and then uh, over to the place where the bomb had gone off and started working there. So let's talk about the bomb. So, so the, and we'll kind of talk about, um, you know, we have a standard practice of never mentioning the suspect's name. So we'll just call him the suspect. Yeah. Uh, I have, I have a variety of other adjectives that I could use, but we'll avoid those. Yeah. Um, Stay so, so this, yeah, exactly. We'll at least try. So the, the suspect, um, talk to me about the bomb. Where was it placed? How yeah. big? All that. Yeah. You asked me about my day and I told you about it. So uh, from his perspective, his day started way differently than ours. Um, so um, his bomb was placed inside, a, I think it was a Volkswagen Crafter. So that's kind of like a big van. And um, it was an Anfo bomb. Uh, I think it was about 950 kilograms of Anfo that he had um, put inside there. So he so drove close, off. close to a ton of ammo. Yeah. Um, a big bomb. Yeah. And he drove that one off and he parked it outside. Um, there's a, it's more or less a block which consists of uh, governmental buildings there at the time. And um, he parked, he drove it right up to the main entrance of the, the high building where the prime minister office is at the top floor and um, went back, lighted the fuse, because he had a fuse to the bomb, and uh, walked off from the car. So um, I think uh, according to the timeline that was drawn up afterwards, um, that one uh, happened about a quarter past three. So- um, Quarter past, or what, what day was it? It was on a Friday. Um, so it was just a typical uh, summer vacation had kicked in in all of Norway, and it was like it was a slow Friday, and the weather was bad. It was gray. It had rained a lot, um, which was kind of like fortunate, given that there wasn't that many people out in the city. Um, so yeah, like I said, most Norway during the summertime and the vacation time is um, yeah. There's there's not much going on. Um, so there weren't that many employees inside um, the high building, which was fortunate as well. So yeah, like I said, a quarter past 3 p.m. And um, after we had gotten the call from the climbing center, one of the guys, he had, he had uh, ridden his bike to the climbing center from his home. And, um, and he said that uh, he, had heard, he thought he had heard thunder on his way because of the rain. Um, but he realized afterwards that he probably heard the detonation of the bomb then. 
Oh wow! Yeah, because it's made how, a, how far away for you? How far away from the site were you guys? We were uh, like we were indoor as well, but we were about um, I would guess more or less like two kilometers, a little less. Yeah, than so two. that's that's a long way for that sound to go. Yeah, yeah, and there's a lot of buildings in between, so the the sound would have been distorted anyway. Um, so yeah. So and, he uh, lights the fuse. He, it's a mechanical fuse. It's an actual yeah, burning fuse like, that he lights. Yeah, uh, a black. I th I think it was um a black powder fuse that he used. Interesting. Um, yeah, it is kind of interesting. Um, and of course, he he had been working on that bone for a long time, uh, which the investigation uh, disclosed afterwards. Um, so, yeah, this, this guy had been planning this event for it, a really long time, right? And had done yeah. a great deal of research and homework. and Definitely. And um, I think shortly, about an hour before he parked the car, uh, he uh, published his manifesto online as well. Um, and then he drove off. Um, he had a second car parked nearby, which he also placed out um, in advance. So after having parked his, uh, his uh, crafter with the bomb inside, he walked off from that one and to his second car, got inside and then drove off to, to what we didn't know at, his, uh, at the time though, uh, what was to be his uh, second attack, which was Utøya. So he, oh. he left Oslo um, about the time when the bomb went off. Yeah, so he sets the bomb and leaves. Yeah. And moves on to the second step of his pen. Now, there yeah. was, was there, did it end up that there was only one device in Oslo? Because I know you got reports of multiple bombs. Yeah. But was it, it was a single device, right? It was a single device. And we learned that afterwards. Um, but um, because of all the damages, because of the blast wave in downtown, uh, people had heard um, the sound ricocheting. And there were several, several buildings that got shooken up during the blast. So I think it's just one of those things. Um, when when things become that chaotic, um, you know, people calls in from the place they experience whatever happens, and you can't really. It, it's a hard puzzle to sort out at the time that it's all connected. Um, yeah, you see it in in every every incident we debrief. Uh, yeah. You know, a single shooter is always reported as three or four shooters. A single bomb is reported as multiple devices. Yeah. I think it's just people, you know, people have different percep perceptions and they see things and, you know, you get multiple reports and the reports give different information. And, and that, that noise is always problematic in all of these events. Yeah. It's like you said, it's, it's, it's problematic uh, at an early stage, definitely. And it's, I think it's really hard to sort out as well. I, I mean, it's, if, if you if you were to analyze it and put it together, uh, it would require a lot of manpower, I think, or some sort of um, yeah computer. I don't know. Uh, yeah, you'd have to have some kind of Intel center that could could fuse the the data. Yeah, and even exactly. then, what you're getting is not that accurate. No, it's uh, not. It's it's chaos just coming through uh, to uh, like a pipeline to the police. So um, so yeah, that was it. So um, I get told when we arrived, um, we knew we, we got to know where the bomb had gone off, uh, and we packed gear. So we took our assault, like tactical assault gear, and uh, we also packed for my team. Um, we 
we pack uh, climbing gear, rescue gear, um, like for any kind of use or urban search and rescue, um, because we were expecting collapsing buildings and uh, holes, you know, all, all sorts of situations. Um, and then we just uh, drove to the place. And I remember driving there, you could see like big uh, heaps of glass in the streets. Um, so it was difficult getting from uh, the outside area and into the, to the blast site because of all the glass. And um, we were thinking we, we don't want to drive over the glass because it's going to create punctures and the car will more or less be useless. But we couldn't find a clean route in, so eventually we just had to, to risk it and drive off and uh, drive through the street that we, we unlike thought, had the least amount of glass in it. Uh, and then eventually we, we came close enough and unloaded from the car and ran off and uh, had a quick had a quick briefing with uh, my assault leader at the time. And then uh, he was together with the on-scene commander um, because at that time there were already a lot of police and civilians in the area and the first responders unit and the fire. Uh, it was next to the, the main fire station in Oslo as well. So they responded and um, getting there, I can remember there were all sorts of sirens going off and um, Visually arriving there, there were, I, I would know, uh, several hundreds, maybe thousands of documents flying through the air, uh, burning, and there was smoke, fire, distorted, all sorts of distorted materials uh, thrown around. It was a huge car wreck in, lying uh, in a fountain a bit far, and you could see just a huge crater where the car had stood. And um, the whole building and the main entrance was unrecognizable to us. Um, and it was a really hard time finding the, the way in to the building. Um, there, were, there were a small team from us that had already been inside the building. Um, and like I said, there, were, there weren't that many people in the building. So when we were going in, we the plan was just to quickly search through it roughly after survivors. Um, we, we weren't expecting any attackers inside because of the damages and because of the normal MO. But we couldn't be 100% sure, so we were all on alert for that one as well. And uh, yeah, it was difficult moving on uh, from the ground floor and up to the to the middle floor of the building, simply because of uh, all the collapsed building materials. There were holes in the, in the, in the floors. Uh, I remember the elevator shaft were just completely knocked inside. There were windows knocked inside, uh, doors thrown around, electrical wires hanging from the ceiling, making sparks, water pipes, uh, throwing water in. So complete chaos. And uh, you would just had to, to scramble through every hallway, every room um, of the building, searching for uh, any survivors or uh, or traces of survivors inside. So, um, so we did that for a while. Went from the bottom all the way to the top, and um, we we didn't find any. My team didn't find any because at the time they had already been evacuated from the building. Um, so yeah, I, I can remember going inside. There's um, we were definitely 
running across some someone at the time they were just you could see that there were human remains uh, on the on the street there so uh, we knew that immediately that um, there were probably several you expect to, to see several dead and uh, injured inside the building but we didn't and it was uh it was what um eight people nine people were killed with the initial blast and a couple hundred injured is that yeah that's that's true uh only eight people um killed in the in the blast and then there were several people uh, nearby uh, being injured from uh, shrapnel and uh, the blast wave and glass falling glass uh into the streets Okay, so so you guys searched the building. Yep. Obviously, you know, every every first responder in Oslo and probably the surrounding areas is descending on on the problem. The suspect in the meantime has snuck out in his other car and driven away. Yeah. So he's he's on his way to Utøya. So um and that, I I think under normal condition that's about uh, what would it be? Uh, a good hour drive from Oslo under normal conditions. Um, but that was in the afternoon, and um, um, I think there was a there were there were actually a car accident that had happened um, on the way out from Oslo, which slowed him down a bit. Um, so he was stuck in in, uh, in traffic for a while, but eventually he arrived at Utøya. With his uh, with his second car and uh, and then his plans for attacking uh, the youth camp uh, that was going on there. So um, let's kind of set that up. So the, so everybody you know every every police, fire, medical resource available is descending on Oslo. In the meantime, the suspect is heading an hour, you know, out of town um, yeah. to to the island now. The island is how far off the coast? Uh, it's it's actually based in inland, so it's um it's a fjord island. It's based inside a fjord. Oh, really? And okay. It's like a huge lake. Yeah. So um, and it's fresh water, obviously. Um, so so it's how um, far how oh, far uh, off the shore is yeah. you know what's the what's the boat transit time? I think the uh, the shortest line to shore is where uh, the local ferry is uh, coming and going, and that's that's approximately six hundred meters. It's not that far. Okay, yeah, so it's relatively close, which yeah. which will make other things make sense in a minute. Yeah. So, so you... okay, so so the island is is a summer camp uh, that is occupied, if I remember correctly, by kids from one from from the political party that he opposes. Um, like yeah. political leaders' kids, right? Yeah, um, that's more or less true. Um, they have, they have. Um, it was the Youth Labor Party, so uh, they have uh, this summer camp every summer on that island, and they have had had it for quite a few years. So it's more, it's an a traditional event happening every summer, and um, it's like a, it's it's like you said, it's a political camp. So they do debating and. Um, all social political stuff there, and then they have concerts and uh, obviously more like youth related um, activities as well. 
Um, and how how many kids are on the island? Like, give me give me some sense of the size of the island. How many kids? Um, it was it was more than um, I think it was around five hundred and fifty, five hundred and sixty. So just below six hundred persons altogether on the island on that day. And these are primarily teenagers, right? Thirteen yeah. to to nineteen or twenty. Yeah, there's um, yeah, well, um, I I at the time I didn't know this. I knew that uh, the event was going on, but I didn't know exactly what dates and what time of summer. But um, there there was a small staff of adults there, um, sure as well. But for the most, um, there's um, young adults and teenagers. Um, so yeah, got it. So the suspect, while everybody's tied up, the suspect goes over to catch the ferry out yeah. to the island. Yeah, because there's the, there was a local, and there still is, um, a local ferry leaving uh, uh, or um, driving from the land side over to the island uh, on the fjord, uh, which is, uh, the ferry's name is MS Tor- Torbjörn. Um, so he, he drove his car down there, and then... Um, or ever since Oslo, he was wearing a fake police uniform, which he had uh, made on his own. And he also wore fake police uh, credentials hanging from his uh, neck. And um, that was a piece of information that we were actually given um, uh, from the on-scene command when we came out from the building after searching there. But yeah, so he, um, he arrived on the, the ferry and said that he's a police officer and he used the incident in Oslo to talk his way and uh, said that he needed to uh, go to Utøya and um, I, I don't remember exactly his words but he was tricking his way um, and um, the guy that drove the captain that drove the ferry he had no reasons to to not believe the guy obviously and um, he drove him over the from the land side and to Utøya with his car, um, and he, inside his car, he had all sorts of um, stuff and supplies for his attack. Oh, so uh, he put his car onto a ferry? Yeah. Oh, okay. I had always gotten the impression he walked on the ferry. So he takes his car, drives onto the ferry, and then the the ferry takes him out to Atoya. Yeah, uh, that's true. So um, as soon as he arrived, and this is his words afterwards, we didn't know that at the time, obviously, but uh, as soon as he arrives there, he he obviously has plans to conduct his attack there as soon as possible. Um, but he is met by uh, one of the adults, uh, which is a female. Um, so she was called Mother Utoya because she was always there for uh, the youth camp. And, um, and then another, um, actually, uh, uh, civilian policeman. He was off duty, but he was working there um, as security. So they met him because uh, the captain that drove the ferry, he, he talked on comms to them and they arrived. And um, uh, what the perpetrator has said afterwards during uh, the trial is that he, he, he was afraid that he was being made by the police officer because he started asking uh, I, would, I guess you would call them confronting questions um, because the outfit that, uh, that the suspect had made uh, wouldn't fool any police officer. Um, he had this 
black spandex uh, shirt. Um, so um, yeah, so he, he he did his best to to copy and imitate a Norwegian uh, like a standard Norwegian police uniform. Uh, but it was, it, but but a real police officer immediately would recognize that it was not a real cop. Yeah. And ju- just for context, I, I, I kind of forgot to pull this up front, but Norwegian police don't normally carry guns during the day, right? The, like the street police uh, are not, they're not armed. They, if no. I remember correctly, you, they have weapons, but the weapons are secured? Yeah, yeah. Uh, that's true. We uh, we only carry arms under special conditions, so we we will need to have a permission. Uh, or we could also arm ourselves uh, if we find that necessary, given the mission that we're on. Um, if we don't have time to 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 get the, the formal permission, so but this um, is not you're not so you're not wearing a holster with a gun in it. You're physically no. going and, and taking a gun out of a, a locked case. Yeah, inside the police car. So if you leave the right. um, the further away from the police car you are, the further away from your weapon you are. Um, and and and. Uh, I'm, as a result, I'm also assuming that no Norwegian police are carrying guns off duty. No, that's true. We're not so, so this police officer, although it's a police officer on the island, he's unarmed. Yeah, he's on uh, what we call private overtime. So he's being paid paid by um, I, I I wouldn't know for sure, but uh, I guess the organization. Um, and then um, he he's there as a civilian person. Um, First and foremost, not not as a formal police officer at the time. Uh, I understand it that becomes confusing, but um, yeah, but that was that yeah, was that... kind of like the arrangement that he had. So so he he didn't he wasn't there uh, wearing a police uniform. He wasn't there wearing any kind of tactical police gear and no weapons within reach. Um, so so that's pretty much yeah. summed up. Got it. Um, okay. So, so they start to engage the suspect, ask questions. The suspect thinks he's made. What does he do next? Yeah, what he does is, like I said, he, he starts getting nervous. And then uh, I think he, what he said is he, he pulled up his, um, because obviously he was armed. And, um, and he pulled his uh, pistol and then he shot both of them in the head. And then uh, that started off uh, the attack. Yeah, so so he executes the two adults, and now the kids, as far as the actual island goes, yeah, the kids are they're they're kind of scattered all over the island, right? It's kind of like different bunkhouses or boarding. Yeah, like. so it's um, it's not a big island, uh, and it's it's like a roundly shaped island, um, more like a yeah, I, I would guess kind of like a not so round pancake uh information so um there were different kind of areas uh, on the island that the kids were doing uh i think at the time some of them were up in a there's a cafe building um which is um so there there's a small knoll coming from the the, um, the dock side of the, the island which is uh, east uh, east uh, side and then immediately you you step up and there's a lawn, and then you have a white main building, which where uh, where um, the two adults were executed. And then behind that main building, there's a there's a hill, and on top of that hill, you got a cafe building. And then 
all the way almost on the northern tip you have something that they call the pump house uh, which is i guess a water pump house or the water supply on the island and then um if you go continue to to um, to the south you will have a red cottage based um, in an open area um, and there were um, tents nearby that cottage as well uh, set up by something uh, which is a volunteer organization that uh, they they help out doing search and rescue missions in Norway um, and doing first aid so they had kind of like a first aid station there set up next to that red cottage and that cottage they they were calling that one um the school building um and then uh, that's pretty much the buildings and then you have a, like a grassy um hill with a scene at the bottom which were their uh, debating area and uh, concert area so uh, at the time the kids uh, would be on those places and uh yeah, so the kids are kind of scattered all over the island. Yeah, they're definitely scattered all over the island at the time. And there's all that. Yeah, there's a huge tent area where they had pitched all their tents as well. And um, there's a huge building um, behind that one as well. So um, I think it was. Yeah, I don't remember exactly how many buildings there are, but there's definitely four big uh, buildings and then lots of tents on the area at the time. So they were just all around those places. And the island, like, just to give me some sense of, what do you think the size of the island is? Like, what what's what do you think the the diameter across of it is? Uh, that that's just going to be a. Uh, I wouldn't even call it a qualified guess, maybe, but um, if if I were to guess, it's no more than maybe five hundred meters across. So that would Got be it. half a kilometers, uh, maybe yeah. across. Uh, in if you if you take the cardinal direction like uh, north to south and east to to west, that will give be my best estimate. Yeah, so the whole area is only a couple of square kilometers. Yeah, um, you know, so it's 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 small and compact. Yeah. Um, okay, so he he executes the two adults, and then what does he do? Uh, well, he he just gets on in with his. Um, his attack and he is armed with a pistol uh, I think that one was a Glock actually and then he has a Ruger semi-automatic rifle um, with um, plenty of rounds um, so he just starts uh, walking around seeking up uh, the the people on the island um, and I don't I don't remember afterwards exactly where uh, he met the first um, group of people. But um, eventually what the kids had told afterwards done was that they heard uh, heard something making sound, but they thought it was fireworks going off. And so that would be the shooting initially. Um, and then at some point, someone runs and says that there's someone walking around there in police uniform uh shooting and killing people and then obviously uh you had a full-blown panic uh spreading out through all the kids at the time um he, his his plan was basically just uh to hunt down whoever was on the island and then kill them 
Um, and he also had with his with him in his car, he had um, uh, different kind of stuff to to ignite the buildings on the island as well, to smoke, to smoke uh, whoever was inside out, and then shoot them when they were coming up from the building. So that was more or less his his uh, plan in in bullet points. Um, so when he starts his attack. Um, my unit is still back in Oslo, uh, finishing up the, the search and rescue inside the buildings and the bomb site there. And uh, like I mentioned earlier, um, coming up from the building, uh, the on-scene commander, I remember that he's, he, he, he was on the call when I arrived there to give my brief uh, sitrap. And um, um, he, he just hung up and then he said that he, he just was told that someone had said that uh, seen a police officer walking off from the the bomb site before the bomb went off, and he was wearing a bulletproof helmet with a visor down, and uh, walking with the pistol in his hand, and that is just really strange because there wasn't um, there weren't any missions ongoing in the area at the time where um, any police officers would behave that way. So that was just like a like a strange piece of information that got stuck in my head. And then we went back to our car and uh, started preparing for what we really believed were to be the next second uh, wave of attack air. Uh, so we were just quickly going through our head um, at this time on a Friday, where you have a lot of people, obviously shopping uh, centers, uh, the airport, Lardemoon Airport. And uh, yeah, that was it. So we were just uh, getting ready and talking through whatever comes next, you know, to be prepared. And then um, initially we had the, uh, the initial call, which actually um, was happening through another police officer. Where, where he was inside the police uh, chief's staff in Oslo, working there along with our uh, unit leader. And... Um, his daughter was actually on the island and he, she was calling her dad uh, inside of the police uh, chief stop, uh, telling him that someone is on the island uh, walking around shooting people and asking for help. So that was, oh, so that was immediately relayed to, to our units. And we were basically just um, eventually told to, to drive off and then some were still held back in Oslo just in case something else uh, was popping up on the radar. Um, so we just said, so, so yeah. The first notification you guys get is actually a police officer's daughter on the island Yeah, calls to say there's an active shooter on the island. Yeah. That has got to be horrific for him. Yeah. Definitely, that's something I've been thinking about afterwards. I mean, uh, it has to be, has to be the worst kind of call and um, to get as an uh, as a parent. Yeah, um, so yeah. Do you know if she ends up surviving? She ends up surviving. Yeah. Okay. Good. Yeah. So okay, so he has fr from the time that you guys clear the building, you're freed up basically starting to prepare, thinking through if this is a multi-site attack yep. where the next one can happen. Yep. Um, how long, so, so the bomb went off at 3.15? Yeah. Yeah. Yep. 
about 350. Uh, okay, so then how long after, what time does he land on the island and execute the two adults? I think that is um, it's slightly past 5 p.m. that he uh, he's arriving the island. Okay, so and and so he he gets there and I mean, if, as far as the response time goes, the response time starts when the police officer's daughter calls her dad, yep. which is presumably you know five fifteen or or you know ten after five or something like that. Yeah, uh, when he has already begun to hunt kids on the island because he's basically just walking around the highland hunting children. Yeah, that is true. Um, I think it was. Um, I can't remember exactly. I think it was. Um, it was a bit later than a quarter past five p.m. that we got the initial call, and then eventually that initial call would uh, be reinforced by several calls um, to to. Um, to that specific police district where Utah is uh, located, um, because there's there's no uh, at the time there weren't any national call center. Each police district had its own cent uh, as its own own central where uh, the calls Not get in, like the nine uh, nine one one calls get in. Um, so yeah, we got that one, and um, I think we deployed more or less immediately afterwards, like I said. Um, so we arrived. Um, yeah, I think it was about half past 5 p.m. that we were deployed and drove, drove off from uh, Oslo. And uh, like I said, it was raining, so it was super slippery. And we were, uh, we were more or less just driving whatever the cars could take and, um, and still staying uh, on the roads, not driving off. Um, and uh, I think we arrived like a couple of minutes past four. We were arriving at the um, pre-decision uh, meeting area for uh, for us and the local police. Um, you said a couple of minutes past four. You mean a couple of minutes past six? Yeah, sorry, six. That, yeah, got it. So uh, that was it. So, so at that point, has anybody else gone on to the island? Are you are you guys the first responders to this thing? Yeah. I think um, initially there were two um, um, police officers from the local police district. They um, deployed and they arrived uh, shortly before um, uh, six, six o'clock. Um, but they couldn't get to the island. Um, and um, so they, they were just stuck on the, the land side. Um, and the police district, they also had a boat. Uh, which they started to to launch because it wasn't all it wasn't already on the water. They had to put it up on the water, um, and then they had to drive it from the, um, the set out point to the pickup point where we had planned to meet them. Um, so all of that was going on as we were driving from Oslo, and we had communications um, off and on with the police district. Um, there was one guy in my unit. He he called the the what would you call it the police central in the district where all the calls uh, come in, uh, trying to to get information through because we had difficulties with the comms, obviously. Um, and um, we also asked for a helicopter, but there was um, there was a huge local fog bank 
which made the flying difficulty um, because the choppers don't they don't have any instruments that could help them see through the fog and there's cables going across the fjord there as well so it's it's really sketchy um, area to fly uh, helicopters uh, well, and at that point, the, the helicopter, you guys do not have air assets at that point, right? And back then, uh, no, um, that's true. So we were relying on army helicopters, which uh, we were we were uh, having um, uh, an agreement with them that they could assist us on missions. So we would need to call and ask for their helicopters to to come and assist us, which we did. So initially, the plan was to link up with that helicopter on top, driving over the hill from Oslo to to the local police district where Utøya is placed. Um, but they weren't able to take off um, and uh, and land because of the fog and all. So, uh, so you guys basically drive to the harbor. You know, to, is is it like a harbor that's across from the island, or what is? <laughs> Yeah, there's a there's a where where we actually um, met the local police. Uh, that's a place called uh, Sturøya. So translated, it will mean the big island, which is um, it's there's a there's a pier on the land side there. So there's lots of leisure boats, and then the, you have a bridge going up over to the the island and Sturøya. But that's I think that's about two kilometers off uh, north. From Utøya, so uh, so from that place to Utøya, there's a there's a boat drive, which is more than 600 meters, uh, because there was chaos. And I I remember eventually when we we started getting closer. Um, obviously, there's there's lots of stuff going on in uh, inside the car there where we plan ahead. We are given uh, sit reps on the way. So uh, the initial report is uh, several perpetrators dressed as police officers walking around on the island and killing people with uh, automatic rifles and firearms. And then from that initial message, um, uh, you know, that it just grows in details. Um, so by the time we actually meet up with the local police, um, kind of like the final situation, awareness of the whole mission is that you have five or four to five at the time perpetrators armed with automatic rifles, firearms. Um, there's IEDs placed out in the trees on the island. Um, so it's, it's, it's starting to get to the same kind of scenario that we trained on earlier that day. Um, so we have a instant recognition of the mission and uh, know what to do. Um, so yeah, um, so none of us at the time, uh, there were no information at the time, uh, which were stating that there were all, only one solo attacker, none information whatsoever, because all the calls that uh, come, came to the police were uh, saying several attackers with police uniforms and uh, automatic rifles. Yeah, it's amazing how much that happens. I, I, like, I, you know, I mean, it's extremely unusual to have an active shooter with more than one perpetrator. Like, extremely unusual. It's kind of Columbine. Yeah. Um, you yeah. know, and and um, so it's, but but yet it seems in every single one of these things. Yeah. The reports are multiple perpetrators. Yeah. And I can get to that later, but, I, you know, it's, um, 
that's that's part of the job. Uh, you get an initial message, and for the most of the time, uh, you don't have uh, either the time or the tools to kind of like the Indian dive into the message and dissect it and go through the information and kind of like, well, this is true, this isn't true. Uh, so you have what you have until you arrive the scene and then you start making your own uh, assessments of the situation. And then you kind of like hold that up to your initial message and then eventually um, uh, a more, how do you say that? Uh, a more precise take on the situation starts happening. Uh, but obviously, there's heaps of information that you don't have at the time. And uh, and we knew at the time, um, I guess I was a team leader, so I was in charge of, of the team. But you, you know uh, that if you wait, taking your decision, if you wait for three, four minutes, you will most likely have more information. But you don't have that luxury. Uh, so you have to make real-time decisions on the information that you have all the time, and then you have to plan and like analyze it. Okay, what does it mean? Where can it take the mission? Um, so you you can like project it into three, maybe two, three, four different kind of mission uh, futures or scenarios that can can uh, come from from the information that you have. Uh, that's a that's a really interesting point though because. You know, it's, it's, there is, you want to make the right decision. Yeah. And certainly there's a feeling that the more information you have, the more accurate your decision will be. Yeah. But, you know, but that is competing with the fact that while you are waiting to make a decision, children are being killed. Exactly. So that's it. And so, so. Yeah. You, you have this, this pressure in both directions to not make an error but at the same time, you have to make a decision right now. Yeah. And I think that's one of the more difficult aspects of all these scenarios is, is this kind of competing pressure of you have to act right now. You've got to do something right now. Yeah. But you don't have enough information to make a good decision. And you know that if you wait just a few minutes, you may have more information. Yeah, that is so true. Um, but at, at the same time, at least the way that we uh, train at the time and train now is just, like you said, you know, it's um, there's really no point in waiting for that information because first of all, you might not get it, so that wasted time. And second of all, you have what you have, and you have the training you have, and you have whatever intuition you have of the mission, and that's what you base your decision making on at the time. And then you adjust it to whatever information comes uh, from your made decision. And then you form your decision if you get the second information. Um, so yeah, so you, so you have to start somewhere. And um, um, like you said, I do think with, with this I mission, think... it, it 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 is pretty simple. I mean, the plan is pretty simple. You have to stop the killing. And you can only do that by by arriving on the island and facing the perpetrators, um, which is you know um, it it's that simple. What becomes complicated is the lo lo logistics of the part because uh, you know you, we knew that we would uh, need um, boats which we didn't bring with us because our boats are too big and we don't really we didn't at the time have any really good system to to bring them along with us and also that would have taken way way time as well 
So we depend on some local resources as well. So we need to cooperate with the local police districts to solve uh, those kind of missions. So, um, so yeah, so, so we were doing our stuff on our side, driving and uh, linking up with the police and they were doing whatever they could on their side to accommodate us and, um, and cooperate with us in solving the mission as quick and, and uh, seamlessly as possible, really. And, uh, but that had to be that had to be the longest hour of your life. Uh, yeah, it actually took less than an hour driving from also, but um, yeah, like you said, you know, it all speeds up. And like I started saying, when we were getting close to the to the area, um, we um, first of all the traffic started queuing up, so we weren't really sure what was happening. Um, there were some traffic accidents along the road there, so we were thinking, well, that 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 ex explains the cues. Uh, but we were squeezing by slowly there, and then eventually we saw a big sign pointing to the left, saying Utøya, uh, and there was a police officer standing there as well. So we stopped, asked the police officer if if this is the place that we were supposed to meet the local police. But I think it was chaos at the time. So, uh, and we, we didn't have the local information um, and we were in uh, a hurry as well. So we, we just, well, we couldn't just start working from there. And um, there was, uh, uh, the first car from us was also down there because that was where the ferry uh, were um, leaving from the land side. Um, but we, we didn't really know that at the time and no one told us either. And the uh, GPS at the time, this equipment that we had, we had one installed uh, our car, but it was like super slow, lagging. And uh, the smartphone that I had at the time was also lagging, which had to do with the capacity of the cell towers in the area at the time. Um, so you couldn't really get any really good visual information on the area as well either. Um, so anyway, the police officer waved us on and we told them comes uh, that we said that uh, well we're not that far away from the meeting point and then eventually we got there and um, the police car no the police boat was already there waiting for us so we, we just took whatever gear we planned on uh, taking along with us and then ran over to the police boat linked up with a police boat driver asked him how many how many of us guys can you take in your boat and he gave us a number and uh, there was another guy from my team. He was already in the boat. Uh, and we just said, well, two teams. You're a team leader of one team. I'm the team leader of the other team. And then eventually we filled the boat up. Um, so obviously we, we wanted to bring certain kind of equipment with us. So what we really needed in both teams was medic, medical gear, because we knew that we would face uh, multiple casualties and injured. And we also wanted to have a ballistic chill in each team uh, so that we had extra protection in addition to our uh, ballistic vests and uh, bulletproof helmets. Um, so yeah, so that, that was the, the, the shift from the cars and into the boat. And, so what uh, time did you guys get on the boat? Um, I think at, um, it was about quarter past six. So we, we arrived, um, five or yeah five six past um, minutes past six 
we are arriving. So we we used more or less less than half an hour from Oslo, um, and then we were loaded up in a, in the boat about quarter past six, and then um, there was some difficulty getting the boat off because it had most of the boat was standing on to uh, like a like a rock. Uh, what do you call that? A rock pier. So uh, it had to be pushed off the rock pier, and um, yeah. So with animation, you have uh, stuff going wrong. So one of the things that happened pushing the boat off was that um, the boat driver he he uh, sped the boat up in reverse, which uh, made uh, the rear of the boat sink down into the water because it was still stuck on the on the rock pier. And that flooded the boat somewhat. Um, I was sitting all the way to the left of the boat driver on the rear there. So we got soaked in water and then told him that he needed to slow down the engine. And then we floated up again. And uh, eventually got the boat pushed off and we drove off. Um, but what, what had happened there was that the water had um, managed to get inside the petrol tank, which was strapped on the floor on the police boat there. Uh, because the lid was open. I think that was because of um, vacuum or having air flowing through the tank. Uh, but eventually water came in there. So uh, after leaving the rock pier and setting uh, setting a course for uh, the island, Utøya, we um, we had engine troubles. So the, the engine started to, to like stutter and then eventually it would stop first time. Um, we got the engine going again, but you could clearly hear that it wasn't running properly um, because it was just constantly stuttering, not giving full power. And uh, that was definitely frustrating. Um, yeah, can only so, imagine. Yeah, and I remember I had my phone on download, downloading a map uh, and it would just like go, like almost download pixel by pixel. So at the time where I took, took my phone up, I had, had like a small uh, picture of Utøya where I could see a main building. I could see some dirt roads going on the island. I could see a red cabin. And uh, the red cabin was facing on the south end of the island. And there was a pier going from the island out in the fjord. And that was about it. That was what the phone gave me at the time. And I just put it back into my pocket. And uh, we started dealing with the engine again. And we got it going a second time. And, uh, and then it went on and we we made some distance, not not that fast, because it was still stuttering. And then eventually it stopped the third time and then it was just dead. We couldn't restart it. Uh, so we just told the guys up ahead in the front of the boat to, to start waving other boats over to us because there were some civilian boats that we could see in the distance. And then um, eventually one of the boats, they, they were coming towards us. So we, uh, we just uh, recommended that boat and uh, loaded the two teams over to that boat and uh, made, made up distance and speed in that boat. And then um, we met a second boat, which had a couple inside the boat. And that was a faster speedboat kind of type. And um, um, the team, one team unloaded from uh, onto that boat and then they drove off. And, uh, and just disappeared into the distance towards the island. And our boat couldn't drive that fast. So we were just holding speed. Um, so the, 
So we had the first game on the island. I think that was, I need to check my notes, but um, what was that? Um, that was about uh, four minutes or eight, 26 minutes past six. So, um, so, it, so you, it took you about 15 minutes to get out there. Yeah. With the, with the boat, uh, troubles and everything. It took, After two boat changes and a motor failure and a, yeah. Yeah. So it took about 15 minutes. And like I said, it, it was a couple of kilometers at least, uh, to drive on the lake there or a fjord. Um, and then my team, we arrived. So the first team that came there. They were just let off from the couple in the boat and then the couple insisted on having the boat and because they were driving around picking up kids in the water that had um, um, just swam off from the island. Uh, so they they arrived on the island. They were given some directions where to go by, um, by the other kids on the island that were just fleeing around in panic and crying. So, uh, and keep in mind at the time they didn't have any information that Said otherwise, so they were just going with the witness states that they statement that they had on the time, and they were heading off on the north side of the island, along the shore there. Um, and shortly before we were arriving, uh, they the first message that they relayed back to us on the comms was that they had found a huge pile with about uh, I think it was ten to twelve uh, dead uh, teenagers that had been shot dead. Um, so that just that piece of information just goes into all the other pieces of information that we had at the time. Um, and I remember that one of the last updates that we had before going on shore was that it was um, about then, it was five to six perpetrators or shooters. And there might be a sniper inside a white house on the island. Um, and I, I remember thinking that, well, shit, that might be the white house that I managed to see on my phone. Um, and by the time we, we started getting closer, so we saw, we saw the white house. And for us, we started hearing rapid single shots, um, which the, our first team, they didn't hear any shots because he wasn't shooting at the time. So, um, so we had sounds of shots, and we also saw a lot of people on the eastern shore of the island, which were facing towards us. Um, they were on the on the shoreline. They were in the water, and you could see them being shot at. We saw the impact in the water, and we also had stray bullets flying by us in the boat. So we had shield up in front and just. We're trying to stay behind it, obviously. Um, just hearing the bullets sizzling by. And I'm pretty sure that it wasn't any direct shots um, because there weren't that many. But we could see, like I said, people in the water, uh, people swimming off, people falling on the shoreline. So we knew that they were uh, uh, shot, either killed or uh, seriously injured. And uh, just on the reach line behind the shoreline, uh there's just heavy forest like dense forest so we couldn't see any shooters we only heard shots um and that was also a frustrating thing because we were just like constantly thinking you know let us see some of the attackers because then we can engage and uh, and shoot back at them uh, but anyway that didn't happen 
So eventually we we got close to the shoreline and the plan was ready within my team. So we just jumped from the boat, uh, run through the water onto the pier that we had seen on the map and um, eventually up a staircase, like a stone staircase and um, got just high enough to see that there were two people lying on the on the lawn up there. And then we changed direction and followed um, like a forest line outside the lawn uh, over to a shed, did a quick um, reassessment of the team, just giving a couple of orders and quickly crossing the lawn because it was big open space. And uh, we just wanted to confront the perpetrators as quick as possible. So we, we just yelled uh, armed police uh, every now and then just to give ahead that we were coming. Uh, in order to maybe provoke or scare the perpetrators or provoke them in engaging us instead of the teenagers. Um, and eventually we picked up on the on the dirt road that I'd seen on the map as well. And we had shots just giving us directions all the time, uh, rapid fires. And um, we're just heading off. Eventually we uh, came to the red building, which I told you about, which was that little cottage that they call the school cottage and you could see the tent area there uh i just remember this it, it, it was just like an area that had been stumped by elephants uh so you could clearly see signs of just huge crowds of people running in all kinds of direction so like the panic was really uh visual to us there um and then the the firing stopped and uh, we just huddled up and uh, kind of sat there listening, trying to figure out the sounds and trying to get some sort of direction in where to go there. Um, and then we heard one single shot that we heard really close. And uh, after that, it was silent again. And then all of a sudden we picked up a person coming up and into the forest. Um, and what we could see is on the Norwegian police uniform, you have uh, like a reflectant pat pattern at the bottom end of the of the, your trousers. Uh, so we could see that uh, the trousers that the person had had those reflective patterns. But then, then again, it could still it could also be a training trouser because we we didn't see anything of the upper body. We didn't see any weapons. So we just yelled at the person saying, uh, "Armed police." Uh, freeze and immediately the person stopped and then he started running off um, to the left of us um, and then we just immediately ran off to intercept again the person um, so we we did that and uh, that was inside he was inside the forest uh, and we were coming from an open area in there just the whole team running down there and uh, while maintaining uh, safety to the very area around us like a 360 and then um, eventually the person he disappeared really quick behind the knoll and then he uh, reappeared again to us and immediately uh, we could see that it was one of the perpetrators uh, no weapons in his, his hands um, he was just walking with his hands like a walking cross palms of his hands facing towards us what was what we could see um 
And like I said, it was dense forest. It was a bit dark, clouded. So we, we didn't have the best uh, visual outline of him. Um, but what we could see that he, would, he was wearing some sort of vest and we saw some square uh, objects in that vest. Um, and he was just saying something mumbling all the time walking towards us we were giving him orders uh freeze or the or else he will be shot because we were um immediately when we identified his quest we were thinking maybe that's a suicide quest and he's he's kind of like walking towards us getting closer and closer and then eventually detonating the west um so we, we felt pretty safe where we were standing i was standing behind a like a huge tree trunk and my colleague to my right, he was standing behind a tree trunk and with a ballistic shield. Um, and my colleagues to my left were doing the same. So we felt pretty safe, given this, that we had some sort of um, protection. And then we had the ballistic protection. And we were out in the open as well, uh, given that if it had been a uh, suicide vest. Um, but he was just walking towards us with a, like a, like we were reading him, it was like he's clearly giving up. But then um, all of a sudden he came close enough for us to see that there was a light, uh, like a white wire going from his vest, from one of the pockets in his vest, up uh, into his left arm and out on his arm there somewhere. And um, that added up to my, maybe that one being a, a suicide vest. So um, we just kept on doing what we do um with the standard procedure for that uh, but he didn't stop walking so eventually what happened was that um i was having him uh, in my sights all the time uh giving him all of him orders and then eventually he would start getting to that imaginary line where we found like where i had drawn saying well any closer than that it will be start getting dangerous to us so, um, so I shifted and then uh, moved my sights from his uh, chest and then uh, immediately onto his face or straight be between uh, underneath his nose, uh, preparing to doing a headshot. So, um, but then he in I think it was in his last step he what his vest became clear to us and we saw that it was uh, magazines, rifle magazines and not a bomb vest uh, and no shots were fired because given the, um, the firearms directive that we uh, have to work for, by, um, he's, not he's not any threat to us and he's no threat to any other persons either. So his actions, um before has nothing to do with the moment um we're handling him so um so we were just basically threatening him if he didn't stop we, we would need to shoot him and then eventually he stopped and then he were arrested uh quickly and put to ground and uh, put uh, handcuffs on so that was it's a tremendous amount of fire discipline yeah, well, yeah. Thank you, thank you for saying that. But yeah, it's um, it is really interesting that part because um, it is um, it's definitely a tense moment of the mission, uh, but at the same time, uh, it feels 
kind of comfortable, but at the same time not so comfortable because you know that he he might propose a threat to us. Um, but I remember, especially I with my rifle. Um, I mean, it's uh, it it made a really um, distinct sound just before the trigger went off, and uh, I got to that point where I felt, um, you know, I felt that. Um, response in my trigger finger and I heard the sound um, and then immediately just nanoseconds before the trigger is actually firing the bullets off uh, we immediately see that it isn't a bomb west and then the finger goes off the trigger and you just reassess the guy again so uh, it, it's I've never been that close firing my uh, my gun in any missions without actually firing it wish i was that day so yeah yeah I, I think you could have been forgiven for killing the guy but it is uh, obviously a tremendous amount of discipline to not kill him uh, yeah and to have that patience yeah that's that's one of the things i've been thinking about because i know that you know like you said um you would be forgiving shooting him given given our first impression of the situation with it might being a bomb vest and everything um but then again it, it's it's um, yeah, it's something I stand by afterwards. At least I, I mean, I, I wouldn't felt, I would have felt it unprofessional if I'd shot him and then later found out that he had a bomb vest, if you know, because I was still feeling safe given the distance and everything. But like I said, he was maybe one step more, and he would definitely have got shot, and then he would have been killed. And then yeah. there's lots of stuff we wouldn't have known in Norway, you know. Yeah, that's fair. Yeah. So, okay, so he gives up, and it, at this point, you still think you have multiple suspects, right? Like, it, it's, yeah. the, you know, the, the problem isn't over. You've just, you've solved part of it. Yeah, exactly. Um, what happens next? So, what's happened next is that we take completely control of him, and um, from the way that we have oriented ourselves on the island, we know that behind that knoll, uh, which for um, um Actually, uh, what we found behind that knoll was his rifle. So he he ran behind that knoll and threw away his rifle. Uh, I'll get back to what I think about why he did that. But we knew that behind that knoll, there was uh, the shoreline that we had seen arriving the island. So we knew that there had to be uh, multiple casualties and injured people there. So um, we were just doing a quick reassessment. And um, like I said, it was just eerie quiet afterwards and um we were still giving that you know one down five to six more to go um so we we um got the message through to the rest of the teams and uh, and to our central in also that we had apprehended one perpetrator and um that we weren't hearing any more shots so we we didn't have any kind of directions to go through to um so i just made a call that uh you know well um no one is being shot at the moment there weren't anyone screaming either so whatever the only thing that we had was that we knew that there were people needing help just behind that hall so um so i just said well i'll i'll stay here with the guy and i'll pump him for information uh, and then my medic i told him to just take the rest of the team with him and uh, take all the medical gear that we had and then go down starting to to help out 
the people that we knew were uh, by the shoreline there. Uh, and it was also told that as soon as we hear any more firing or people screaming, you need to stop what you're doing, come back here, and we'll head towards that um, area where the sound is coming from. And um, he went off with the rest of the team there. Um, so they immediately afterwards, I got a quick seat trap and he just said, you know, there were people everywhere, um, serious gun injuries and people killed all over the place. And um, they do, did an amazing effort rescuing several people, um, running out of the medical equipment um, and coming back for more, I emptied my pockets. So we had actually used up all our, our personal kits as well. Um, and they started making improvised sorts of tourniquets and stuff. Um, yeah, and the number just grew by the time we, we did that. And it started, and it was still quiet on the whole island. Uh, no sounds whatsoever. You, could, you only heard the rain falling on the leaves in the forest. Um, and then eventually one team of our that had been searching along the shoreline, they came and we linked up and had a quick uh, handover of the information. And then they continued uh, doing a shore search uh, from uh, along the eastern shoreline all the way to the south point and further on. Um, so they, by this time, there were several teams working um, more or less on the whole of the island, clearing the island, going through the buildings and um, we had comms problems, so we couldn't, you know, there were some messages that were cut off and uh, some messages that wasn't even um, heard by us that were further away from the messages. So we had difficulties um, communication with communication on the island. Um, but eventually um, we heard stuff and, you know, one of the messages that kept on being relayed was that, you know, we we found a large amount of dead people. We found a large amount of dead people and that just grew in numbers. Um, so we were just conveying the information from the island via our um, mission leader and further on to the police, local police district. And they were adding up the numbers pretty quick, um, which just quickly grew. Um, so we were just searching and then um, doing that for hours and eventually we started setting up evacuation, uh, security evacuation uh, routes and then we started emptying the different kind of buildings and uh, yeah, people were just, you know, uh, peeping out from every hiding place you could think of and not think of. Um, so inside the, the, the red cottage that I told you about, which were one of the last buildings that we had made like a quick um, huddle up and reassessment uh, next to, there were bullet holes in the doors there, but inside there were, uh, I don't remember exact number, but there were several people that had just hid inside the building and they were staying dead quiet because they didn't want to make any sounds. Um, and he, the perpetrator, he had actually tried to ignite that cottage as well, but he, he didn't manage to, to create any 
fire, so it didn't catch fire. Uh, but they were super scared because we were wearing police uniforms. Uh, we were saying that we were police and we had guns. So um, they were thinking that we were there to kill them, not to rescue them. Um, and I was just like, it was just not going through their heads, obviously, because they were in complete panic, you know. So we had to say several times that we're the real police, we're here to help you, and you don't need to worry. Uh, but they were panicking. And I remember one of the things that my medic told me afterwards was that um, he came to one of the survivors, uh, which just immediately said, you know, I, I can't take it anymore. Just kill me now, kill me now and get over with it. I'm, I'm tired of running, uh, which made, obviously made a huge impression to him when he said, you know, we're not here to kill you. We're the real police and we're here to rescue you. Um, so yeah, so that was kind of like going through the next hours then. And uh, we didn't find any more perpetrators. We, there were someone that we kind of like um, suspected of maybe being perpetrators because, like I said, there weren't any more shooting. Um, there was a miscommunication because one of the guys he used his shotgun to open a door, and uh, we heard obviously two shots being fired. We heard it was, we reckon it was a shotgun because it was a sounded like a shotgun being fired off and not a rifle uh, ammunition. Uh, but yeah, we, we got on the comms that someone had um, used a shotgun to open a door. Um, and then that was it, you know, silence ever after. Uh, so we were thinking, well, they're either mixed in, so they're part of the, the, um, the, the crowd on the island, or they have gone into hiding on the island or they managed to escape the island, you know, using boats or whatever. Um, so yeah, at that point, were... everybody you encounter is a threat. Yeah. Right? yeah. Every, every, every single living person is a threat. Yeah, exactly. Every tree you pass, every, yeah. every section of the forest, like there, exactly. there could be another shooter anywhere on the island. Yeah, exactly. So we were still like conducting searches and keeping our guard up high. And like you said, every person that we met, unless you immediately knew, um, we were treating them accordingly uh, until the, we were absolutely certain that they weren't uh, the perpetrators. What did um, the suspect say? When you, when you interrogated the suspect, what did he say? Did he admit that he was a, a sole shooter or? No, that's the thing. He didn't do that. Um, so he was in... Obviously, he was he was he was pretty triggered. He was high up. He wasn't violent or anything. So it was a pretty straightforward uh, uh, arrest. And um, he, yeah, I remember some of the stuff I said. But he was he was basically preaching about his ideology, yeah. uh, and he had he definitely had a huge need to to explain why he had done what he had did uh, done that day. Um, well, the thing is, uh, just a couple of meters to our right, where we apprehended it, there were two young people lying in the grass there, uh, which were obviously then they'd been shot in the head, and um, um, like really young teenagers. And uh, he showed no remorse, no sympathy, no empathy, nothing whatsoever. Um, he was just 
set on explaining to me uh, what why he had done it. And um, one thing that I really remember, and I, I don't think I'll ever forget it because it's, I mean, it's it's such an absurd logic. But he said, you know, uh, there will come a day where you will see me as a hero um, for what I've done here today. Yeah, and well, we're not even fucking close to that day. So no, no, no. no. And no. I, I remember my reply. It was like just um, a straightforward, uh, calm reply, saying, "Well, I'm pretty sure that that day will never come. There's no one in Norway that will ever see you as a hero. That's for sure." Um, but he was non-cooperative in the beginning. He were complaining about the tiny wound on his finger. <laughs> uh, that it hurt and he needed uh, medical assistance for that. Obviously, he didn't get it because there was no time for doing that. Um, and he really didn't want to, first of all, he didn't want to, he was he was turning away every time I tried to take his picture. Um, and uh, didn't really want to answer any questions. Um, he definitely gave the impressions that there were more terrorist cells that were um, hiding and that were planning on conducting uh, more attacks. Uh, he did not want to confess um, whether or not uh, if he was alone or that there were more perpetrators on the island. And uh, yeah, so what one. What I eventually ended up doing is I, I just uh, stopped talking to him and then eventually he would stop talking as well. And then um, I said his name and then he would turn around and I was, was standing there ready with my camera and I took his picture. Um, and then uh, we had a picture of him with his whole outfit and I conveyed that to, to our command uh, uh, central and then he conveyed it uh, further on to the police. Uh, so, um, yeah, because yeah, uh, yeah, he had all the equipment, uh, on him. So, um, so that was kind of like the quick interrogation out there in the field. Um, and then from also there were two special in, uh, interrogators coming, uh, onto the island as well. So eventually he would be taken back to the white house or the main building on the island for, um, uh, preliminary interrogation there by those two police officers. How long was it until the next wave of, of support arrived on the island? So you guys are kind of by yourself for a while there, but what? how long is it till you start to get some more medical support and, yeah. and more police support and more boats and all of that? Yeah, well, um, you kind of like touched into it already. Uh, because of the threat level, we couldn't take that one down uh, immediately. So uh, what we did, we were evac evacuating the people that needed evacuation from the island um, uh, using the boats and then uh, driving them with the boats onto the mainland. And by, by that time, uh, it had just piled up with uh, medical resources on the land side. And uh, there were also, by then, there, um, we've also gotten helicopters. So it was just a huge um, pool of resources standing by, uh, both in a like a what was it, like a resource area that the police had um, predetermined, and also 
where the ferry comes and goes. So, um, and also there's lots of civilian people with civilian boats. They've been picking up kids uh, before our arrival as well from the water and just let them off on the land side. And, yeah, because uh, the kids, the kids were running into the. I mean, the water is freezing cold, right? I'm assuming yeah. the water. It's, it's a fjord. It's, it's yeah. not. You know, it's it's what the fifties, forties. Yeah, uh, no more. Uh, I mean, nothing much more. I would say maybe about uh, 20, 20 degrees Celsius. Yeah. So so it's, uh, uh, so it's like a. Yeah, it's it's typical Norwegians' uh, water temperatures in the summer. Some kids, kids were trying to swim off the island. He's shooting at kids that are trying to swim off the island. Yeah. Uh, kids are hiding along the shoreline. Like, it's it's just, it is it is such a horrific thing to imagine yep. a guy walking around for an hour and 15 minutes killing children on an island yep. who are trapped on the island and have nowhere to go. Yeah. Um, it, it's, you know, and then then to have to roll into that, I, I can only imagine the, the, you know, the lasting effects it had on everybody involved in the operation. Yeah. Um, yeah, yeah. I mean, you could definitely re uh, relate to that part, um, both as a human being and also as, as a parent yourself, obviously. And uh, like you said, I mean, um, I think uh, you have to take this with a pinch of salt, but I think only one person actually uh, drowned. Um, there were 69 people that were killed on the island. And uh, one of those persons drowned, and I think one person also fell down from a cliff and died from the fall. But obviously, both of those incidents are related to the perpetrator. So he's yeah, responsible sure. because um, for both of those, those uh, deaths. But yeah, like you said, he, he was just basically uh, uh, walking around shooting fish in a barrel from his perspective. Um, and what we learned during, during his trial as well was um, because of the testimonies from the from the kids, and some of these testimonies we got already during that evening when we started the evacuation. You know that he had been walking around, he had been faking a police officers officer, and then um, he would call people out from their hiding places, line them up, saying that you know I'm here. There's a bomb gone off in Oslo, and I'm here to to protect you and help you but I, I will need to write down your name and information so you you will need to stand in line and then he would just instantly take his rifle and kill them at the, uh, at the spot um, and when we were doing the, the, the clearance of the rest of the islands we obviously saw those uh, spots where you could just see people um, just basically lying there and uh, some of them had piled up as well because they've just uh, huddled together out of panic and fear. And uh, so, so yeah, that's the kind of human that was um, killing uh, the teenagers on that island. Um, and he said he said something in the line, in the in the course of you know he didn't want to he didn't want to go through with that. He he wanted to stop killing them several times. And he called in to the police um, before we got there as well, saying that uh, he had some really strange demands. By by the way, uh, he would just he wouldn't talk to any normal police. He would only talk to a certain level of police officers. 
like really grandiose uh, thinking of from him from his perspective. But yeah, so he would just say, you know, uh, I want to, I want to surrender, uh, and then he would hang up the call and start killing again. So yeah, I I judge judge him from his actions, and there's nothing in his actions that indicates that he really wanted to to surrender and stop killing those uh, yeah, teenagers. For sure. So so how long was it until you guys had totally cleared the island? Like like at so this is, you know, now we're what, 6.30 p.m.? Uh, yeah, he was, we, yeah, we made, um, we made, uh, I think we arrived shortly before half past six. Then we uh, touched down on the island and then we just quickly ran towards the direction of the shots that we heard and he was arrested uh i think it was four or five minutes afterwards so um so yeah and then and, and how long is it till you have cleared the whole island and yeah. are confident that he is the only suspect oh yeah well uh i mean we, we that took several hours like i said um because um, all the dark, and there was darkness creeping in as well. So we had to, sorry, we had to um, to get our uh, night vision goggles uh, in order to, to go, go through the island. So um, the first wave of search was just like a really rough one. Um, and like clearing, clearing the areas really quickly, every hooks and, uh, and uh, corners of the, the buildings and the island. And, um, and then we would reassess and then uh, make sure that we had covered all the area. And then we would go through a second time and I'm like fine combing it. Um, and then you, you said something about the other resources, but you know, they were just gone on, on the island. We got local police coming in as well eventually and several teams from us. Um, I don't remember exactly how many people or police officers that was on the island at the time, but there were, there were a lot eventually assisting with the search uh, and uh, homing on the island. So um, I think about, um, must have been closer to half past 10 or 11 in the evening. Um, we had um, kind of made sure of uh, the number of dead um which we relate to the local police officer uh, local police district and uh, our command center um and by that we weren't 100 percent sure if or if not you know was it only one or was it more we couldn't be 100 percent sure um but we were having an intuition that you know it's a bit strange they they must have run off if there were more um, and also uh, because no one was sticking out from the crowd that we had been uh, evacuating. And everyone that was evacuated that didn't need, need medical care, they were just uh, drove, driven to a hotel and um, taken care of by the local police, you know, going through and interrogating and making sure that the story added up and that they uh, weren't any suspects. Um, so we were... Somebody by the time we're done, we end up with 
69 kids, you know, 69 people killed on the island. Yeah. Uh, was it eight or nine killed in Oslo? Eight killed in Oslo. So by that time, 77, 77 altogether. And then uh, I think you had, there were uh, just under 60 people that were badly injured on Utøya. They were evacuated into the hospitals. And uh, uh, so, you know, some of those people weren't certain to, to survive either. So it was kind of like touch and go with us, um, but eventually they ended up surviving. Um, there was only, I think it was only one person that died. He, he'd been shot badly in the head when we evacuated him, uh, but he was alive at the hospital, uh, but uh, in obviously not uh, conscious and in coma. But, but yeah, um, so, so yeah, it was what? 69 altogether that died on his uh, so let's let's walk through kind of lessons learned. Um, yep. You know, obviously, this is this is why your unit existed, not this specific scenario, but this kind of of incident. Um, what changed in the in the aftermath of the event and and research and report and after action reports? What yep. changed in the team? What did what did you do differently uh, on the heels of this event? Uh. Well, um, obviously we, uh, we evaluated everything and, um, what we found is that for the most, our focus for our training had been correct. Um, because that was some of, uh, several of us, um, said that, you know, we, we had immediately recognized, um, uh, the mission and we knew what to do and we were confident in our skills and equipment and everything. Um, I think what, what really changed was, you know, um, definitely, uh, our mission of protecting the citizens of Norway. Um, and also that was kind of like the day where, uh, the terror actually hit Norway as well. So you, you, we definitely got, uh, like a re uh, certification that it is real and it can happen anytime. Um, you know, we, we also got the confirmation, lots of confirmation about our equipment. What changed is that we, uh, we invested in better, uh, communication gear. Uh, and, um, we, also, um, yeah, obviously you, you kind of like, you got to um, look into, uh, like you said, you know, for the most, um, those kind of shooting incidents are done by a single perpetrator. Um, kind of like, it's just, um, and we knew, knew that from, like you said, like Columbine and other, um, other school shootings that had been up until then, um, but we had it. Yeah, yeah. I don't know if it's kind of like understanding, but what we did, it, what we actually did was we we just really, really um, galvanized the focus on our training, and uh, because the way that we train is that we 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 see the trends, and um, we are given uh, intention. 
by our chief. And that intention is anchored in uh, intelligence report. And then we break that down into how to, how to conduct our training. Um, so um, yeah, so what, what, what really changed is that we, we and, and we'd always been on call, like I said, because that's that's part of our main mission that we we need to be available to whoever whoever needs us. Um, but that became even clearer after that day. So, like I said, it just galvanized a lot of um, routines that we already had in place, and we improved them in whatever way we could. You know, having the gear ever slightly more ready, packing the car ever slightly more ready than before. Um, uh, having an even more uh, focused um, way of conducting the training on suicide bombers, obviously, um, which we, we hadn't actually trained that procedure for that long when we actually um, had the mission, but it's definitely helped. So it made it realer uh, simply because we had um, thought that it might be a suicide west in the beginning. Um, and then that that's only for my unit, uh, if, if that's what you're really interested for. Obviously it's changed um, the whole of Norway uh, from a police perspective. Um, like I said, uh, it was summertime and it's quite common to cut down on staff during summer vacation. Um, so um, in the local police districts, I think it was, uh, I think it initially was only one person working on the receive center there from the, the 911 calls. Uh, and obviously that person was quickly overworked uh, and uh, just flooded with uh, telephones and uh, different tasks to do. But eventually they became two. So they were on demand. Um, and I guess that's that's kind of like always a uh, calculated risk that you take, uh, you know. Um, and, and, and some of the things that changed was also uh, the agreement that we had with the arm, army choppers. Um, they they improved um, the release of the chopper, so like the the decision making uh, levels of uh, of the request were improved. And um, yeah, basically, what was really improved was every way that resources can be deployed quicker, better, and faster. Uh, well, Nor Norway as a country has a kind of curious relationship with violence, right? It's not a it's not a country that loves violence and not all that enthusiastic um, about, you know, having guns and law enforcement, all those kinds of things. How yeah. did this change public support for the unit? Yeah. Uh, well that's that's an interesting question because um, I mean it's that that's first of all it's always been a really black and white debate in Norway. You know, should the police wear guns or not? Um, it's like you said, we we as a nation uh, prefer prefer unarmed police. That's what's kind of like the official version. Um, and to some extent, I think it's it's 
it's kind of like it's it's nice but still you know we, the police have certain kind of tasks and one of them is to pre protect their citizens um and yes like you said um i don't think norway is it's definitely not the most violent uh, country in the world oh no um but every now and then we we do have a lot of guns because there's a lot of hunters in this uh, country so we definitely do have a lot of guns around and there's a lot of illegal guns on the market as well among the criminals um so we do have the firearms all you need is the person and every now and then you have crazy people as well that have guns or uh, manage to get their hands on guns so we do have all the ingredients uh but our culture is kind of peaceful. And I think that is what gives us this peaceful uh, view and also makes it a peaceful country, which is to some extent, uh, Norway is kind of like also probably a safe haven to a lot of criminals as well, just because of those things. Um, but we do have, um, we do have, you know, there are some drug gangs uh, other criminals like robbery robbers, uh, which are quite uh, violent and use a lot of firepower power when they uh, do or commit their crimes. Um, but yeah, for the most, compared to US, we are in the other end of the scale uh, by far. Yeah, it's, a, it's the, actually really interesting. I mean, the guy only got 21 years in prison. Yeah, like so, in the US, we would have locked. I mean, we probably would have executed him. Probably um, certainly would have locked him up and, and hit him with, you know, yeah. 70 different life sentences. Uh, yeah. Your, your judicial system gave him 21 years in prison. Yeah. And it's, it's, yeah, it's, it's seeing from your perspective, it has to be strange. And it's, that's the thing, you know, he, he survived. So um, it's uh, Norway did some changes simply because of him surviving because it challenged our legal system. So for one, he was um, in the in, at one point he were found to be uh, unfit for uh, prison. So um, because the psychiatrist that uh, assessed him made that conclusion, and um, that was challenged, and then it was um, turned around. So he was actually found fit to to serve in prison. Um, and we, we only have a maximum of 21 years. Uh, but what has happened with his, we also have an additional something that is called like, a, you, are, you are put on, I think it's a 10 year period. Uh, and then every 10 year you are reassessed if you are fit to be released. Um, and he, um, he hasn't been found fit to be released, obviously. So he's he's too dangerous. So it's it's kind of like a strange. I, I'm not that I'm not an expert on those matters either. So, but he he has those 21 years, and then he has 10 years, 10 years, and 10 years, and that can eventually end up into being his uh, life sentence uh, yeah. because he he yeah. will need to be cleared by psychiatrists. And I don't think at this point no no psychiatrist uh, been willing to take the chance to say that you know. <laughs> He has been, he's, he's learned his lesson. He's fit to be let free into the society again um, because he keeps on doing stuff every now and then. There's stuff sparking up here in Norway 
which he has initiated. Um, but for the most people have kind of like forgotten him and they don't want to, like you said, um, you know, we, we won't mention his name. And I think that that is a good thing. He should really just be forgotten about in jail. And yeah. with what you asked about uh, earlier was with the weapons debate and the police, obviously that one sparked up. Um, you know, um, so, um, yeah, and it was debated once again. And once again, the conclusion was made that for the most, you know, the police don't need to be armed all the time. Um, but like I said, um, we also did some changes, um, which is uh, has to do with uh, what kind of equipment we are allowed to, to have inside our cars. Um, so, yeah, like I said, it's, it's, it has to be with preparedness, you know, we, we have made, um, made the path of getting stuff as a police officer, uh, easier. That's, that's one of the outcomes from, uh, 22nd of July, um, because you need, you obviously you need certain kind of equipment to function as a police officer. If you if your job is to rescue all the people when they need to be rescued, um, but it's a funny thing. It's it's something that is going on today as well, and you know you have the whole political side of Norway engaging in the whole thing, and you know it's um, yeah for the most the middle part isn't really discussed, and that's where it should really be discussed because that's where all the, the answers and the good solution is. But it's a black and white. It's really for yeah. all around. Don't feel bad. It's not just you. <laughs> no, no, no I, 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 I don't feel bad, obviously. Uh, like I said, it's, um, we, we have the weapons directory, firearms directive that we have. And it, as a police officer, um, it gives me lots of freedom. You know, I am allowed to, to arm myself when I see that fit and I make that call. So, um, so yeah, I think it's... So to conclude our time together, let's talk about what, kind of your personal, the, the fallout to the team. Uh, yep. How did, did any of the guys, did you lose any of the guys on the team after this uh, because of the effect of the event on them? No, we didn't. Um, and to my understanding today, uh, none of the guys have really had any bad fallouts um, coming from participating in that mission. Um, we did the day afterwards. Uh, I had like a quick defusing with my team uh, because my unit is really good on having that, you know, that human focus and taking care of um, us operators after um, having gone through serious missions. Um, and yeah, so that was on the on the Saturday when things were really fresh. Uh, none of the guys expressed any kind of issues to me. And from my point of view as well, they were functioning the way I, I um, knew that they were functioning normally. Um, and then on the Monday afterwards, so after the weekend, we had a huge um, unity briefing with every unit uh, or a team and uh, operator involved in the mission. And 
we were, yeah, we have, um, psych we have a psychologist that we can use if we want to. Um, and um, obviously we have colleagues that we talk with. So we have all these sorts of different arenas to, to vent out if we need to vent out. And uh, my understanding is that everyone was talking about it. Everyone that wasn't taking part of the mission was also uh, coming and asking. So you have a you, you had a good work through. Um, obviously, you saw stuff that's uh, I wouldn't say haunt you, but you're gonna remember them for the rest of your life. Um, one thing when we're doing the sweep afterwards uh, in the evening, there um, you saw the cell phones so the teenagers. Um, some of them went out in the water because they had been undressing for preparing for the swim. Um, and they piled their clothes together and the phones were lying on top of the clothes. And they, the display would light up even in the phones in the water. And you could see mom, dad, you know. Um, obviously, it's easy to, to put yourself in that situation, being that parent in the other end. You have heard about what's happening. You know that your kid is on the island and you can't get hold of them. Um, so that's that's something that I think for my part, I'm always going to remember that um, because I can identify with that. Um, but yeah, my impression is that we were taking really good care of by my unit and the guys took care of themselves and we looked after each other in time afterwards. Um, you mentioned lessons learned. One of the lessons that we learned was media, you know, and the public's uh, expectations to policing in general, and especially those kinds of missions. Uh, so first of all, the expectations, uh, you can never ever live up to the expectations because they're unrealistic. Uh, you know, I if I were a criminal, I can at any given time take my weapons, put them in a bag, walk on through a train station, uh, whatever public place in Norway, pull that one out and kill tens of people before the police catches me. You know, that's the vulnerability uh, in the society and that's, that's the vulnerability of being a the democracy. Um, so that was it. And the media is just, you know, they're, they're out for blood and they're out to, to, to criticize. And, um, and it just goes on and on and on and on. And that was another experience. You know, you, you need to be, uh, Someone in the police need to be ahead of the media um, and giving giving uh, educational information because obviously there's a lot that you can't say simply because of uh, of um, um, you're not allowed to say them. It's uh, it's confidential information, uh, but you can say something about you know how did the police uh, solve those kind of missions? What are the challenges? Like you and I've been talking about, you know the information. You know that the information you you are given haven't been uh, you know it hasn't been checked out, um, and also you know that you are going to be um, every step every decision that you are made is going to be looked upon, and people make the mistake of looking upon them with the eyes of all the information they have received afterwards. When every stone has been turned, and um, so that is that is the media part and the lesson learned from media. And eventually, it went on so far that it started on 
you know, it started creating frustration along with the guys as well. Um, because if you look on the timeline and, and if you look on when the mission was or the initial uh, message was given to the police and then when the guy was perpetrated, it doesn't take a lot of time. And you have to account for driving, you have to account for the issues with the boat, and you have to account for the, uh, what would you say, the, um, the lack of proper police material. Um, because this wasn't, it wasn't like a black swan incident happening, sadly. Um, it had been something that we had been train, training for for quite a while. And it had happened in other parts of the, the world as well. Um, so there was stuff that could have been made ready in, in advance that sadly wasn't there. And afterwards, things started getting in place, obviously, because then the incident had happened and things had been made real. Um, so I think the lesson learned is that, you know, it's, it's listen to uh, the qualified police officers within the police and uh, make sure that you um, take the right steps in order to having the right amount of training in place. You have to have, um, like I said, you have to train with all the police districts as well, you know, because we will need to work together on the incidents. And all of that has improved um, by quantum leaps afterwards, which is really nice. Um, but with the media thing, it's really hard to handle. Um, but you can't stay silent because uh, they will just flow over you with, uh, with whatever they have. Um, yeah, for sure. Yeah. yeah, it's very easy to, you know, after you have all the information, retrospectively look at the situation and then solve it. Yeah. So last question. What are you most proud of in the event, your response? What are you most proud of? Uh, you know, I, I'm most, most proud of the guys in my team that actually did the medical assistant assistance to all the people that needed it. They saved a bunch of lives. Uh, that's that's for sure um, because that's come came back to my unit from the hospitals that got uh, the injured people on their um, operation tables. So I'm proud of that. I'm proud of the way that my unit um, has taken all the experiences and like put them into training, like you said. Um, so even though I recognize that it might don't. It might not sound that we have changed that much in our training, um, which sometimes, you know, a mission is giving you confirmation that you are on the right, right path. This one did that for my unit. Um, and, and I'm also proud of, um, of the civilians that they didn't have any special training that day. Uh, they were basically out on the, on the fjord there enjoying the afternoon in their boats. And then all of a sudden, they just, um, you know, reached out and started helping those kids. They for sure as well. They are, um, yeah, I, I've always seen them as kind of like forgotten heroes and they have, have their own traumas from that day. They've um, been in the media here in Norway. Uh, and I'm proud of Norway as a society that you have those kind, kind of people um, stepping up, uh, risking their life. Uh, lives and in, in, in helping others. Um, 
yeah um but yeah i guess that would be be the ones uh really you should also be very proud of the professionalism you guys display because it would have been very easy to kill that guy it would have been very easily to beat him to death uh i think yeah. the the restraint the unit showed um in in light of that horrific circumstance is is very impressive so hey man thank you thank so you much for doing it. this i I appreciate your time. I appreciate you coming on and talking about it. And uh, like I said, you guys should be very proud of yourselves. Yeah. Thank you, John, for uh, saying that. And uh, I'll be sure to relay that one to the guys. Uh, We appreciate that. And thanks for having me on your podcast. My pleasure.